Welcome to Star Drifter, the science fiction patio book series written and read by David Collins Rivera. Today's story, All He Surveys, Volume 1, Chapter 6. Despite all the sleep in sick bay, I racked out on the couch for a few hours. That would have been easy at any rate. It was a huge thing, as silvery, silken, and soft as bubbles, and I was able to lay flat, soft shoes and bone-white, double-breasted kitchen jacket off and in the closet just off the entranceway. The rooms were over the top in the use of that silver-white palette, but there were a wider range of pastels in the accents. And unlike other cabins aboard, the honeymoon suite sported a full kitchen, laundry nook, and a closet of cleaning supplies. Many newlyweds treated the honeymoon as a vacation, but the mantle of domesticity was a romantic ritual for others. Preparing one's mate the first breakfast... Cleaning clothes, cleaning the freshers, there were two. Cultures and expectations varied, and this suite was outfitted for as many as possible. Interstellar honeymoons had become especially popular, since it allowed for newlywed couples or groups, multi-partner bondings were common in some places, to have some time all to themselves before facing the usual pressures and obligations of the outside world. Temporal displacement in the artificial pocket dimension of jump space could last for days or even weeks, depending upon a number of factors. It was referred to as subjective time. In the real universe, however, such a trip took no time at all. A ship just disappeared from one place and reappeared at the same moment light years away. In other words, time passed on the journeying vessel while none at all passed for the rest of the universe. Newlyweds could, therefore, take a luxurious trip to another star system faster than the human brain could even process it, while yet having each other all to themselves for a time. Of course, most people weren't starting their lives together in this way when traveling across the stars. Most didn't need days or weeks of personal discovery and privacy. Days and weeks were expensive on a ship, and tickets were priced accordingly. The vast majority of passengers, on the vast majority of ships, traveled in suspended animation within commercial freeze tubes. This saved on resources such as life support, power, provisions, and, of course, patience. More advanced or efficient ships could go further in a shorter amount of subjective time. Accordingly, the word faster was generally applied to such vessels, despite the fact that all starships moved at the same speed in the real universe. That is to say, instantly. I'd traveled on and served aboard vessels that could handle thousands of sleeping passengers at a time. Few people enjoyed the process, but with safe cold passage technology available, it was almost always the best way to get around. 
I actually preferred it most of the time. If I'd been a frozen passenger on this ride, for instance, I'd have woken up none the wiser. And none the dumber. Because I must have been an idiot to think that a starship for the very rich could be free from the kind of motives and secrets that got people to do such extraordinary things. I'd spoken with Duca several times in the galley pertaining to the job. Nothing he ever said seemed even the slightest bit sinister. I'd cleaned things, prepped vegetables, watched and stirred pots, given Zene Michaels a hand glazing desserts, all via his translated instructions from Chef Tonva. He hadn't seemed angry or desperate. He'd been focused on his job, eager to help his superiors in the kitchen and to see their orders carried out. I had spotted no obsession, no calculating evil. He was an energetic, if slightly boring, guy. How he could be all those things and a murderer was beyond mysterious. I'd seen his face. He was sickened and repelled by what he'd done, yet raised his pistol to do it again to Fausel's wife. He may have been off-balance, but he hadn't been unbalanced, nor ruthless. Compelled, somehow? Forced to do it? Though his motive was as yet unknown, I could see why he'd chosen the moment he had. It was likely the first time he'd been face-to-face -face with his employer since the family returned from Ainspace. Duca had been agitated in the kitchen before we delivered the meal. I remembered that much. But he'd also been rock-steady on the way there, traipsing down the gaudy companionways past all the people who didn't see either one of us as anything more than the robot cart itself. In fact, he'd been ramrod straight. That could have meant... Okay, it probably did mean he was hiding something. Carrying a pistol aboard a ship like this, where it should have been completely impossible, would have certainly given me some wide, guilty eyes. The linesman had been bolstering his composure right up until the moment he made the kill. He showed his horror then, even while reaching for more. Not a fanatic. Not even angry. To my mind, that meant something all on its own. His compulsion, whatever it was, had been unwelcome but overwhelming. And he'd never done anything like it before. Assassin he may have been, but a hardened killer, Duca was not. Still, there had been practice in drawing and firing the gun, because that had been a flawless mechanical action. He'd had an ankle holster, or maybe just his sock. The pistol was small enough. He did that bow to his master, letting his hand fall down near the weapon. He slipped it out, then stood while taking a half step to the side, his hand already extending toward the Fausel guard. So, rehearsal and coaching, but only in that one action. Well, in that and squeezing the trigger. It might even have been easy for him. I'd done as much myself in the past and with zero training. Actually, that was unfair, and it served me nothing to search for personal parallels with a killer. Not with that one, anyway. He was a blank wall. Investigations for things like this could take months or even years. 
At least some of the truth would surface, including the whys and hows, but it would take time to assemble, and all I could contribute was information they already had, that Duca, a member of the household who almost certainly had access to his targets in the past, had come aboard this time specifically to kill them. I wouldn't be allowed any freedom of movement until what I'd witnessed had been related to those deemed to be the proper authorities. Read that threading the needle of imperial policies and outrage. Considering the circumstances, they might ask me about it many times over, in many different ways, using different people and different interview techniques. Some friendly and cajoling, some rude and intimidating. Because that's how these things were done. It's how authorities got at the truth. And if it looked like I might be lying, or if they didn't want to take the chance, or if it was simply a matter of policy, they could float me up on drugs and get it out that way. They could even use torture if they wanted. Who was I to tell them no? Well, maybe not torture, not on me, specifically, since I was an Alliance citizen. They'd risk an international incident, however small. Still, there were always stories about such things, disappearances and hidden facilities and such. Either way, I had no intention or reason to be uncooperative. So I lay there, staring at the arched ceiling of the place. It was of a soft cream color and had swooping sorts of decorative elements, complex and airy, quite unreal. Above it, hidden beneath this handiwork, the overhead would be metal, gray and flat and very, very hard. Why me? Not why was I locked up, but why was it that I, out of everyone who could have possibly been there, was there? in the Fausel cabin. It wasn't supposed to have gone that way. Duca had looked for someone else and either hadn't found them or this person couldn't or wouldn't join him. Had they been the person or people who'd supplied him with the weapon? What had been the original plan? Were there supposed to be two killers in the room? No motive, yet there had to be one. No pattern, yet there had to be one. These weren't thoughts for an apprentice cook. They weren't even thoughts for a professional gunner. They were thoughts for investigators, detectives, security guards, even cute granny guards who didn't look anything like their age. Oh, the couch was really comfortable. There were gaps in my record I refused to account for. CSO Mino asked me to fill in those blanks one by one, and I just stared at him. These gaps weren't new to him, he said, and they should have prevented the cruise line from hiring me. It had bothered him from the start. In fact, he'd been vocal about it even before I'd come aboard. This was most irregular, even singular. He'd never seen the like. Was I the brother or secret lover of somebody important? Their cousin, maybe? 
What was this nonsense about being a familion cano? How had I landed a position in that kitchen with such a renowned chef with so little practical experience? The fix was in, obviously, but how was it done? I had no answer for him on that front. I didn't have one for myself. I was just there when it happened, Chief. I didn't see it coming. No one did. He studied me, then started tapping at a large data pad. A vessel this size didn't have a dedicated interview room. We were in his office, a somewhat cramped space with a narrow counter running down the center to act as a desk. It looked and felt uncomfortable, and I think he was uncomfortable working there. Chief Security Officer Gray Mino was a man of indeterminate age or origin. He had very dark skin and a shaved head in response to premature baldness. He sported a pencil-thin mustache that seemed like a point of vanity. His uniform was the sickly green of the ship, but with navy piping. Unlike others, his shirt had short sleeves. This might not sound like much, but I'd yet to see a uniform on the ship that didn't have long sleeves, not even ours, in the kitchen, where, believe me, it could get hot. He was somewhat short, maybe my height, but solid in frame. He obviously worked out because his arms were rather big around. He'd be a tough one to arm wrestle, but was not so bad to face in an interview. His manner of speech bore a spacer's tone, which is to say it was the accent of a man who lived and made his living upon many ships and stations without ever settling on one. He seemed smart, but out of his depth in this thing, and flailing. He touched a spot on a tablet, and a mini tri-D image rose up from its surface. This was the three-dimensional figure of the victim, apparently taken by in-ship sensors at boarding time. All of the background had been cropped out, so it only depicted a stooped old man looking somewhat lost and comical without the wider context of his family. After a moment, another figure stepped into the image. He was a tall man with a long, dark beard. He wore one of the family's outrageous security uniforms. I've seen that guy. He works for them, right? This is Glautigavil, the victim's head bodyguard. Bad day at the office, then, I offered. The CSO gave me a glare. This is funny to you, he demanded. Gallows humor, chief. I'm still in shock myself. It's how I deal with this sort of thing. Then you've had to deal with it before. When, where, and why? It was a waste of time, and I think we both knew it, but he was required to follow procedure. The video and censor transcripts of his investigational efforts, along with all evidence, would be in someone else's hands soon enough. There couldn't be any accusations of witness tampering or of pandering to fellow crewmates, just in case said crewmates turned into persons of interest. It's immaterial to this investigation, I stated simply, shaking my head. I'm under certain legal obligations, so I can't and won't say anything about unrelated aspects of my life. You can ask, you can intimidate, you can even knock me around, but it'll be a waste of your time. Even if I talked, you wouldn't find a single thing to help you with this. I wasn't in on it. I wasn't there to help or hinder the attack. I was there to serve a meal. 
My background has nothing to do with this. He started to look angry, but having seen that expression on interrogators before, I could tell it was an affectation. Being a professional, he'd be able to whip it out on demand, then pack it up when it wasn't needed. Really, this was about filling out reports that would hold water, both here and back home in the Alliance, reports that would shine a light upon him and his staff as much as it would the investigation, and none of it would likely be flattering, no matter what I said. Okay, we'll put that aside for now, he presented with a practice scowl. He read his tablet for a while, then looked up again. Witnesses say you attacked the suspect. Is that true? I tossed a dish at his gun. Does that count? From what others say, you probably saved some lives by doing so. Oh? Well, it seems like you had some presence of mind, at least. But you never saw him reaching for his weapon? I didn't, no, and I didn't have much mental presence when he shot the guard and the old man. But when he pointed his gun at the wife, it was right in front of me. He makes his move, you make your move, and he ends up dead. That's a question for this guy, I replied, gesturing at the ghostly guard. Duca's weapon was in front of me, and I threw what I had in my hand at it. Pure instinct. Seriously, if I was in on this thing, and was supposed to kill Duca afterwards to keep him quiet, do you really think soup would have been my weapon of choice? I don't know what to think about you, Ejock. <laughs> I'd heard that one before. Really, all my life, from people who knew me and people who didn't. Chief Mino's work was only just beginning. The mere fact that such a heinous crime occurred on a ship like this on his watch probably meant he was out of a job once Dorcas returned to its home port. But before that could happen, he had to get through noble space officials, then the International Route Management Authority investigation that was, by transnational agreement, required to be launched, and then AIN authorities back home, which would almost certainly include fleet investigators. All of this was just starting for the guy, and I was giving him grief right out of the gate. Chief, look, I realize my background is a little spotty. I've done classified work in the past, so you know what that means. I can't talk about it. But I've since changed careers. Right now, I really am just an apprentice cook, nothing more. He listened. That was nice. He wrote something down on his tablet. Are you feeling okay? He asked after a bit. Yeah, a lot better. It was a pretty gruesome attack. Yeah, but they all are, really. He listened to that, too. He wrote something else down. Is the wife doing okay? I asked. Dr. Sagasaw's been attending. She was able to give a coherent account, though the doctor has her on some anti-shock meds. Because of that, nothing she's said so far would be legally binding in a court of law. And Duca? Those stun pistols killed him? What's the point of carrying them, then? Military stunners are meant to be used against armored enemies. They can be deadly at point-blank range against civvies, but the things are technically considered non-lethal, legal loophole. It's against company policy to let them aboard, but the cruise line made an exception in this case. Well, that seems convenient. He didn't respond, but continued to eye me. 
Okay, I offered after a time. Do you want me to go over it all again? I will, but not right now. You'll be questioned at Kezika Station. You might even be detained for a bit while they do it. That won't be up to me, but the ship's legal AI will be put into service for you and any other Alliance witnesses should that happen. There's only so much influence we're likely to have, understand? At least until we can get a report back to the company. Then you're done with me for now? He nodded and gestured to the small room's hatch, so I thanked him and used it. S.G. Ciala, who'd escorted me here, was waiting in the companionway outside. He seems nice, I pronounced. She gave me that half-smirk I was starting to think was her unconscious reaction to any attempt at friendliness. We walked back to the honeymoon suite without any of the joy that might imply. Well-heeled passengers and a few crew members on the way to their cabins or duties watched us with wide, curious eyes, some even huddling together to whisper. Word gets around, I observed, but again she didn't comment. She didn't comment on anything, all the way to the ugly door, where a uniformed Fausel guard watched us approach in equal silence. When it opened, I turned to my escort pointedly. So, what is it? More orders, or did I do something new and outrageous? What do you mean? You've been awfully quiet. And everything everyone does or doesn't do is all about you. She said this without pause, but also without venom. It was just a response to a man that was owed nothing. I shook my head in helplessness and some frank irritation. I had assumed we'd built a mild level of rapport. Not at all. Have a nice shift, S.G. And I turned to enter. Wait, she sighed with quiet exasperation. This thing is disgusting. Horrible. It happened under our noses. If anyone in security is short with you, it's not because of you. But your sense of humor doesn't help, Ejok. You should lose it for now. I'll get right on that, I promised. I did mean what I said. Have a good shift, Tinnig, okay? I'm trying, she offered in return, but with conviction. The door slid shut on her smirk. It looked a little less tight this time, but also quite tired. It might have been the first informal interaction between us. The other man, standing tall behind her shoulder, wore a flat stare, neither menacing nor the least bit encouraging. We're locking you in, Dorcas's ship guard added, her voice raised through the door. You know the drill. I know the drill, I echoed loudly. Dinner was delivered by autocart about an hour later, and it was accompanied by a small note. Thinking of you, love and kisses. Hearts and flowers drawn in an awkward hand, as well as several obscene little doodles adorned the paper. The dish was, of course, souffle, and it was, of course, perfect. Not even deflated from the trundle over from the galley. Pure magic. Clearly, Yukus was right. I didn't belong there, and now there included all this, too. 
Chef Tonvai and his people had been removed from the kitchen, I'd learned from CSO Mino early in the interview, and Chef Irina reinstated Halal Be Hanged. I guess it was the only possible response under the circumstance. He stopped short of saying whether the round little man had undergone an interview of his own just yet. There might have been a language barrier there, though they could have muddled through using translator tech. Duca had been his man, and that made the chef, if not guilty of a crime, then involved, to an extent. Were a list to be made of the people who had failed the Fausels, it would have started with Ziplintonva. His professional reputation would take a serious hit from this. His cooking might have been excellent, but his managerial skills and choice of staff would forever be suspect. It's possible he'd never again hold executive chef status in any kitchen that he himself didn't expressly own. But he wasn't the only one circumstantially involved. My enthusiasm for a fresh start had been circling the drain for a while, and I could feel it going down at last. There was no ducking the thing anymore, no way to tell myself that it was only a matter of time before I got the hang of things. The new career had failed, utterly, miserably. I had an open invitation to work with the Vernays family here in the Empire. Their home was Duenda, a terraform planet they had purchased at auction. Its previous owner, one Baron Deskew, had been forced to put the world up on the block, along with some other key assets, in order to pay off a series of large economic debts. There was bad blood between Deskew and the Vernays family. I'd been party to some of that, and wouldn't have shrunk from more, the good Baron having won no affection for me over the years. So, yeah, rich nobles, rich people, industrialists, politicos, rank, money, treachery, and murder. You didn't have to be one of them to become part of their gory hijinks. You could get covered in their schemes and butchery by proximity alone. You just needed bad luck. Something I had in spades. You have been listening to Wall He Surveys, Volume 1, a Star Drifter novel written and read by David Collins Rivera. This story is copyright 2022 by David Collins Rivera and is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 international license. Feel free to use it for any purpose, even commercial, and I encourage you to do so. The Star Drifter theme is a piece called i by Trunks and can be found on SoundCloud.com. The All He Surveys theme is a piece called Blossom by Edward Maloff and is licensed through tribeofnoise.com. 
This story is a work of fiction and is not based upon nor meant to portray any person, living or dead, nor any particular place or situation. Any similarities to such are purely coincidental. You can contact me at lostinbronx at gmail.com. That's L-O-S-T-N-B-R-O-N-X at gmail. You can also check out my site, davidcollinsrivera.com, where you'll find everything Star Drifter, including more audio, novels, and stories, the Star Drifter tabletop role-playing game, podcasts, newsletters, and more. Stop by, won't you, and drop me a line. Thank you for listening. Take care.